Part one, sections one through sixteen of All Things Are Possible by Lev Shestov, translated by S. S. Kotilyansky, eighteen eighty eight to nineteen fifty five. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Part one Zu fragmentarisch ist Welt und Leben. H. Heine. One the obscure streets of life do not offer the conveniences of the central thoroughfares no electric light no gas not even a kerosene lamp bracket there are no pavements the traveller has to fumble his way in the dark if he needs a light he must wait for a thunderbolt or else primitive wise knock a spark out of a stone in a glimpse will appear unfamiliar outlines and then what he has taken in he must try to remember no matter whether the impression was right or false for he will not easily get another light except he run his head against a wall and see sparks that way what can a wretched pedestrian gather under such circumstances how can we expect a clear account from him whose curiosity let us suppose his curiosity so strong led him to grope his way among the outskirts of life why should we try to compare his records with those of the travellers through brilliant streets two the law of sequence in natural phenomena seems so plausible so obvious that one is tempted to look for its origin not in the realities of actual life but in the promptings of the human mind this law of sequence is the most mysterious of all the natural laws why so much order why not chaos and disorderliness really if the hypothesis of sequence had not offered such blatant advantages to the human intelligence man would never have thought of raising it to the level of eternal and irrefutable truth but he saw his opportunity thanks to the grand hypothesis man is forewarned and forearmed thanks to this master key the future is at his mercy he knows in order that he may foreknow savoir pour prévoir here is man by virtue of one supreme assumption dictator henceforward of all nature the philosophers have ever bowed the knee to success so down they went before the newly invented law of natural sequence they hailed it with the title of eternal truth but even this seemed insufficient la petite viande au mangeant like the old woman in the fairy tale about the golden fish they had it in their minds that the fish should do their errands but some few people at last could not stand this impudence some very few began to object three the comfortable settled man says to himself how could one live without being sure of the morrow how could one sleep without a roof over one's head but misfortune turns him out of house and home he must perforce sleep under a hedge he cannot rest he is full of terrors there may be wild beasts fellow tramps but in the long run he gets used to it he will trust himself to chance live like a tramp and sleep his sleep in a ditch four a writer particularly a young and inexperienced writer feels himself under an obligation to give his reader the fullest answers to all possible questions conscience will not let him shut his eyes to tormenting problems and so he begins to speak of first and ultimate things as he cannot say anything profitable on such subjects for it is not the business of the young to be profoundly philosophical he grows excited he shouts himself to hoarseness 
in the end he is silent from exhaustion and then if his words have had any success with the public he is astonished to find that he has become a prophet whereupon if he be an average sort of person he is filled with an insatiable desire to preserve his influence till the end of his days but if he be more sensitive or gifted than usual he begins to despise the crowd for its vulgar credulity and himself for having posed in the stupid and disgraceful character of a clown of lofty ideas five how painful it is to read plato's account of the last conversations of socrates the days even the hours of the old man are numbered and yet he talks 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 Crito comes to him in the early morning and tells him that the sacred ships will shortly return to Athens, and at once Socrates is ready to talk, to argue. It is possible, of course, that Plato is not altogether to be trusted. It is said that Socrates observed of the dialogues already written down by Plato, how much that youth has belied me. But then, from all sources we have it, that socrates spent the month following his verdict in incessant conversations with his pupils and friends that is what it is to be a beloved master and to have disciples you can't even die quietly the best death is really the one which is considered the worst to die alone in a foreign land in a poorhouse or as they say like a dog under a hedge then at least one may spend one's last moments honestly without dissembling or ostentation preparing oneself for the dreadful or wonderful event pascal as his sister tells us also talked a great deal before his death and de musset cried like a baby perhaps socrates and pascal talked so much for fear they should start crying it is a false shame the fact that some ideas or some series of ideas are materially unprofitable to mankind cannot serve as a justification for their rejection once an idea is there the gates must be opened to it for if you close the gates the thought will force a way in or like the fly in the fable will sneak through unawares ideas have no regard for our laws of honour or morality take for example realism in literature at its appearance it aroused universal indignation why need we know the dirt of life and honestly there is no need realism could give no straightforward justification for itself but as it had to come through it was ready with a lie it compared itself to pathology called itself useful beneficial and so obtained a place we can all see now that realism is not beneficial but harmful very harmful and that it has nothing in common with pathology nevertheless it is no longer easy to drive it from its place the prohibition evaded there is now the justis titulus possessionis seven count tolstoy preached inaction it seems he had no need we enact remarkably idleness just that idleness tolstoy dreamed of a free conscious idling that despises labor this is one of the chief characteristics of our time of course i speak of the higher cultured classes the aristocracy of spirit we write books paint pictures compose symphonies but is that labor it is only the amusement of idleness so that tolstoy is much more to the point when forgetting his preaching of inaction he bids us trudge eight hours a day at the tail of the plough in this there is some sense idleness spoils us 
we were returning to the most primitive of all the states of our forefathers. Like paradisal Adam and Eve, having no need to sweat for our bread, we were trying to pilfer the fruit from the forbidden tree. Truly we received a similar punishment. Divine laws are inscrutable. In paradise everything is permitted except curiosity. Even labor is allowed, though it is not obligatory, as it is outside. Tolstoy realized the dangers of the paradisal state. He stooped to talk of inaction for a moment, and then he began to work. Since in regular, smooth, constant, rhythmical labor, whether it is efficient or whether it merely appears efficient, like Tolstoy's farming, there is peace of mind. Look at the industrious Germans, who begin and who end their day with a prayer. In paradise, where there is no labor, and no need for long rest and heavy sleep, all temptations become dangerous. It is a peril to live there. Perhaps present-day people eschew the paradisal state. They prefer work, for where there is no work, there is no smoothness, no regularity, no peacefulness, no satisfaction. In Eden, even the well-informed individuals cannot tell what will come next. Savoir pour prévoir does not answer, and everlasting laws are exposed to ridicule. Amongst ourselves also, a few of the work-abjurers, the idlers, are beginning to question our established knowledge. But the majority of men, and particularly Germans, still defend a priori judgments, on the ground that without these perfect knowledge would be impossible. There could be no regulation of the course of natural phenomena and no looking ahead. 8. To escape from the grasp of contemporary ruling ideas, one should study history. The lives of other men in other lands in other ages teach us to realize that our eternal laws and infallible ideas are just abortions. Take a step further, Imagine mankind living elsewhere than on this earth, and all our terrestrial eternalities lose their charm. 9. We know nothing of the ultimate realities of our existence, nor shall we ever know anything. Let that be agreed. But it does not follow that therefore we must accept some or other dogmatic theory as a modus vivendi. No, not even positivism, which has such a skeptical face on it. It only follows that man is free to change his conception of the universe as often as he changes his boots or his gloves, and that constancy of principle belongs only to one's relationships with other people in order that they may know where and to what extent they may depend on us. Therefore, on principle, man should respect order in the external world and complete chaos in the inner. And for those who find it difficult to bear such a duality, some internal order might also be provided. Only they should not pride themselves on it, but always remember that it is a sign of their weakness, pettiness, dullness. 10. The Pythagoreans assume that the sun is motionless and that the earth turns round. What a long time the truth had to wait for recognition. 11. In spite of Epicurus and his exasperation, we are forced to admit that anything whatsoever may result from anything whatsoever, which does not mean, however, that a stone ever turned into bread, or that our visible universe was ever naturally formed from nebulous puffs. 
but from our own minds and our own experience we can deduce nothing that would serve us as a ground for setting even the smallest limit to nature's own arbitrary behaviour if whatever happens now had chanced to happen quite differently it would not therefore have seemed any the less natural to us in other words although there may be an element of inevitability in our human judgments concerning the natural phenomena we have never been able and probably never shall be able to separate the grain of inevitable from the chaff of accidental and casual truth moreover we do not even know which is more essential and important the inevitable or the casual hence we are forced to the conclusion that philosophy must give up her attempt at finding the veritatis aeternae the business of philosophy is to teach man to live in uncertainty man who is supremely afraid of uncertainty and who is forever hiding himself behind this or the other dogma more briefly the business of philosophy is not to reassure people but to upset them twelve when man finds in himself a certain defect of which he can by no means rid himself there remains but to accept the so-called failing as a natural quality the more grave and important the defect the more urgent is the need to ennoble it from sublime to ridiculous is only one step and an ineradicable vice in strong men is always rechristened a virtue thirteen on the whole there is little to choose between metaphysics and positivism in each there is the same horizon but the composition and colouring are different positivism chooses grey colourless paint and ordinary composition metaphysics prefers brilliant colouring and complicated design and always carries the vision away into the infinite in which trick it often succeeds owing to its skill and perspective but the canvas is impervious there is no melting through it into the other world nevertheless skilful perspectives are very alluring so that metaphysicians will still have something to quarrel about with the positivists fourteen the task of a writer to go forward and share his impressions with his reader in spite of everything to the contrary he is not obliged to prove anything but because every step of his progress is dogged by those police agents morality science logic and so forth he needs always to have ready some sort of argument with which to frustrate them there is no necessity to trouble too deeply about the quality of the argumentation why fret about being inwardly right it is quite enough if the reasoning which comes handiest will succeed in occupying those guardians of the verbal highways whose intention it is to obstruct his passage fifteen the secret of pushkin's inner harmony to pushkin nothing was hopeless nay he saw hopeful signs in everything it is agreeable to sin and it is just as delightful to repent it is good to doubt but it is still better to believe it is jolly with feet shod in steel to skate the ice it is pleasant to wander about with gypsies to pray in church to quarrel with a friend to make peace with an enemy to swoon on waves of harmony to weep over a passing fancy to recall the past to peep into the future pushkin could cry hot tears and he who can weep can hope i want to live so that i may think and suffer he says and it seems as if the word to suffer 
which is so beautiful in the poem just fell in accidentally because there was no better rhyme in russian for to die the later verses which are intended to amplify to think and to suffer prove this pushkin might repeat the words of the ancient hero danger is dangerous to others but not to me therein lies the secret of his harmonious moods sixteen the well-trodden field of contemporary thought should be dug up therefore on every possible occasion in season and out the generally accepted truths must be ridiculed to death and paradoxes uttered in their place then we shall see end of part one section sixteen recording by expatriate in bangor maine